0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: Our guests today are Silicon Valley veterans. One created the first Apple mouse, the other designed the award-winning Apple PowerBook and the original Star Wars action figures. 13 years ago, they founded the Stanford Uni Life Design Lab, and they now teach thousands of students how to apply design thinking to get unstuck in life. The course, the most popular in Stanford, has led to a global franchise and a New York Times best-selling and worldwide best-selling book, "Designing Your Life," published in 2016. Today, they are here to discuss their follow-up book, "Designing Your Work Life: How to Thrive and Change and Find Happiness at Work." We welcome Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks hey, how for Unusual, we have both uh, co-authors on the show, but it's great to have you. Here. And good news for audience: I have a copy of the book up for grabs. You can see it behind me on my right. It's up for grabs. Just sign up to the Innovationshow.io newsletter for a chance to win that. Let's get straight into it because I know you guys are under time pressure. Let's start off with the context for this book because it was born out of both the lab work and then your previous book, the hit book in 2016.
0: The the book actually began from the publisher. I mean, the publisher said, look, this this isn't a book. It's a movement. We got to keep the mojo going. Um, Hey, you guys come up with a bunch of ideas uh, for where we could go from here. And so we sat down, Bill and I sat down with our, with our agent, with our collaborative writer, with our team, you know, uh, and I said, by the way, I'm not going to necessarily work on the book. I'm just here to ideate because Bill likes to ideate with me. (laughs) Um, so I'm just an ideation consultant today. I may not be a co-author. you know? Um, so it's really reticent. And, uh, and we, we have all these ideas. We, and we, I think, shipped eight titles off to the publisher and they came back and they picked this one. So they picked designing your work life. And the idea was first and foremost, that, um, A lot of people think it's not necessarily true that designing your life. Our first book is about really big change at the dramatic inflection moments of your life. It actually applies all the time, but most people read it at a a big moment. Um, And a whole lot of people don't want to massively change their lives. They want it to be a little bit better, small change, right where they are. And if you ask people, what's the one place you'd like to make a little better if you could work absolutely comes up number one, every single time. Um, And then So we, and so then they go, great. And Bill and I get together to figure out what that book is, because all we knew was the title. And we sit down, and I say, Bill, this is a disaster. <laughs> we have no idea what this book is. All I know is the title. We haven't taught a course on this for 12 years. We don't know, we, I mean, I have no idea. And then I'll let Bill explain how 20 minutes later it was all done.
2: I mean, between us, we've got, you know, whatever, 40, 40 years of working. And, and, you know, and, and both of us have always had jobs we really liked or design jobs, you know, that just by by instinct that were, were great. And, you know, with about a half an hour later, we had a whiteboard full of stuff. We had the minimum uh, actionable problems. We had the beginnings of maker mix. We had all sorts of things. Because the fact is we've been working a long time and we've been in the conversation with 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 50-somethings about work and what's working for them and what isn't. And then I, I went around and sort of dug up the, the Gallup poll statistic that 68, 69% of US workers are disengaged or actively disengaged at work. And it we were like, well, that's
0: international, yeah.
2: Yeah, I said, that doesn't make sense. Why are people so bummed out? And then, we, and then we started doing what designers do. We did the empathy step, we started talking to people. And we just found out that people are stuck in, you know, the job doesn't, isn't very meaningful. It's, the job isn't, I don't, I don't see how this matches my purpose in life. Now you get the pandemic and all the stresses that are caused by working from home or not not being in an office with your colleagues, and and then there's you know since we wrote the the 2016 book certainly the the phenomenon of the gig worker the you know the worker that's working you know with a a tech startup like Uber or Lyft or Postmates or or Grubhub or whatever the the the, uh, delivery apps are in, in in where you guys are. And those folks are all going well. Is this is this it? Is this going to be my career? So we just found there was a lot of dysfunction uh, out there, like like we did with the first book, and uh, it wasn't that it, 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 the book kind of you know all the chapters created themselves and off we went.
1: Seventy five thousand hours—that's how long most of us spend in workplace. But you you made some personas, and I thought we'd start off with those personas because they will resonate with some of our listeners. You had like for example Bonnie, Marie, and Lewis. Maybe you'd take us through some of those guys.
0: So we've got, you know, the, you know, 52 year old guy that's stuck in the job and he's got to pay the bills. And then, you know, the company gets acquired by some other corporate holding outfit and the culture changes and he hates it, you know, but he can't afford to quit. Oh, God. Now what's he going to do? You know, um, so that's a classic version of stuck. Uh, Bill,
2: you pick one or two more. The Bonnie version is actually the thinly disguised student of ours. She's, you know, she's five years out of college. She's had five jobs. Um, you know, this, this generation, I, I, I mean, I, I, I love my millennials. I love the Gen Zs. They're all great. And they're, and, they, and they're willing to work really hard. You see them in startups. They'll work a hundred hours a week. And by but the way, Bonnie's all five aggressive. of those jobs worked. That was the problem. Yeah. yeah all the jobs are great. She loved them all. She, and she did a great job at all of them, but there's a sort of a, a generational hook on novelty. Like I already did this job once. would so I want to do it again. You know, what what happens at a job is, hey, you ran that project really, really well. You know what you get as a reward? Do another one. And, and then another problem,
0: one. And her problem was that they were all they were all fine. Some of them were even pretty good, but nothing was amazing. And I want it to be amazing. Are you telling me there's no amazing available in the world? Oh no, my life is over. You know, so she's got that problem.
2: Uh, yeah. And then and the, you know, the Lewis is the is the classic, you know, get on the get on the train, commute into the city, commute to London. You know, do the nine to five job. Uh, back in the fifties, there was a book in the U.S. called "The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit," and it was about this kind. Of, there's nothing wrong with this life, but this is the classically disengaged worker. Does the job. He works at the accounting firm. Works at the big trading company. Whatever it is, and he and he's he's a cog in the machine, and he turns his wheel. But he gets back You know, he looks on the train, looking at the his reflection in the window. He's saying to himself, "Is this it?" Is this what I went to college for? Is this what is this it? I'm just going to do this every day till I die, or till I till they retire me, or till the company gets bought, or till there's a you know a, a, a layoff or a, a redundancy. Um, so you know all of those people were people we were trying to talk to in in the book because they're all stuck in in different ways. One's looking for novelty, and wants it always to be exciting and purposeful. One's just stuck because it's boring. One stuck because he signed up for one job and then they changed it, right? And all of these situations are situations where you can use design, design thinking to kind of reboot the reboot the job or reboot your search for the right job. And also it's a way of figuring out, well, what what does make me happy? What does, you know, trigger some sense of meaning and purpose in my life? Or maybe just to reframe the job and say, hey, this job's fine. I go to work every day. I do a good job. But when I come home, now I'm coaching, you know, the soccer team. Now I'm working, you know, at my church or my or my community organization and doing things that really are meaningful. So it's this over, over and over in the first book, the second book and everybody we've ever talked to, everybody's looking for a life that's got some meaning and purpose in it, where there's more happiness, you know, in, in general about, Stuff. And since we spend 40 or 50 hours a, you know, a, a week at work, like I said, seventy-five to 120,000 hours uh, of my life will be at this place called work, we just wanted to help people optimize that experience a little bit.
0: And by the way, yeah, it's so not just people who are struggling or failing or unhappy who are stuck. One of the characters oh, no. in the book that is unnamed, but I think it's not confidential to share, um, is the global CEO of Penguin Random House. You know, leaves all 24 imprints worldwide, you know, because he was working with us. Um, he was talking to our agent one day and he goes, well, hey, where's my chapter? And so the, <laughs> overwhelm, the chapter on overwhelm is specifically for Marcus Dole, who is the global CEO of peer He goes, I, this is my problem. Is that in the book? It's got to be in the book. Um, so, you know, you're a highly successful, very happy global CEO of a massive multi-billion dollar publishing entity. And you need a chapter in the book, too, because everybody gets that.
1: Absolutely. I, I love what you said. I'm coming back to something Bill said there because you said the gray flannel suit, we're not cogs in the machine. You say, and I love this, we are levers in our own lives. And you say the beautiful thing about designers, and it's in your blood from a long time ago, is that, that you don't think your way forward, you build it forward. And to do that, we need six distinct mindsets. I'd love if you share this.
2: We talked about the mindsets in the beginning. In the first book, we added a mindset here. It's like, you know, first, let's get curious. Because curiosity is the fuel that, you know, get moves you into the future. Gee, I wonder what would happen next, you know, if you have that curiosity. Then radical collaboration, because, you know, you've got to be out in the world working with people. Reframing the problem is the really big one. Reframes are, you know, like the power tool. Like, if you're working on the wrong problem, you're not going to get a, you know, a good result. Mindful of process, because, you know, you want to make sure you're, you're flaring when you need to flare and focusing when you need to focus. And then um, a bias to action, which is, you know, if, they, if you don't, you can't plan the future, so let's just go try stuff. And then our, our, our new mindset was storytelling because, we, you know, one, storytelling is a big deal in design nowadays. David Kelly, who's our senior professor at Stanford and the guy who started IDO and the D school, he'll say, you know, nowadays it's not enough for the designer to just come and say, hey, look, I invented the mouse. Um, <laughs> you gotta, you got to be able to tell the story of, like, this is the thing that's going to allow you to use computers in a brand new way, and the future is going to be so great. So we got to have storytelling and storytelling also completes the loop, you know, on the get curious, talk to people, try stuff, storytelling, because storytelling is where we uh, invite the world, you know, to join us on our journey.
1: Dave, let's jump into it with something that you tee up with a question. And you say it's something, anybody who has kids knows this very well, or anybody who's actually just been in a car with some kids and it's, are we there yet?
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And the answer is no, uh, we're not there yet. The, um, when I sat down, you know, um, what we talked about was, you know, pe- people are unhappy, you know, and there yet, yeah, I mean, you know, am I making enough money yet? Am I promoted yet? Am I, am I realizing my dreams yet? Have I impacted the world enough yet? You know, have I, have I fulfilled the utilization and stewardship of my gifts well enough yet? I mean, and the answer is always no. And so it's not good enough. And this is what, what led us to the, you know, to the reframe of, um, of course, we're not there yet because we're on a journey and who wants it to be over? Now, can I make some design modifications to make it good enough for now? Good enough, comma, dot, 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 for now. Um, and so we're not, saying, we're not saying saddle. We're not saying, hey, gray flannel suit guy, just get a blue suit and add it to the <laughs> thing and that's all you get. You know, you did two suits. No, we're not saying that. Uh, and, we're, and we're not saying, by the way, um, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. We don't use that phrase. In fact, I think that phrase embodies an idea that really doesn't work, which is let's take something you really don't like at all. It tastes horrible. And let's just find a way to, 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 to like it. Let's just let's just mess with it and take a bad thing and make it a good thing. You know, let's let's just, you know, well, you know, I mean, not that those ideas have no value but we're not saying just get good at settling, sprinkle sugar over a bunch of crap and, and enjoy it. Um, no, we're saying you can design a new reality and even a small incremental change can have a highly leveraged outcome. So can we make it good enough for now, for a period of time, live into that, get the full benefit from it, and then we'll do it again, we'll do it again, we'll do it again. You know, so we're well, on the when,
2: way. when we had the phrase, um, you know, are we there yet? we hadn't, you know, we had not contemplated the, you know, the COVID pandemic. Yeah. And everybody's asking the question, are we there yet? Are, are we, are we <laughs> yes, we're we uh, there. And uh, we like a a, whole, Disneyland a little YouTube channel on, you know, <laughs> designing the COVID times. And it's like, you know, everybody, everybody's sitting in the waiting room going, is this going to be over yet? Is this going to be over? Are we, are we there? Are we there? Are we there? And that's driving people crazy. And you got to reframe that because that's just, you know, you, everything in our bag of tricks, if you will, it's all about giving you some control. When you can say, hey, this is good enough. I can make this good enough for now. And I got some ideas about how to make it better in the future. But I'm in control of how I how I imagine this. I'm in control of my mindset. And I can decide how to move forward. D- design is a series of decisions. Good ones and bad ones, but we're, tri- we're typically trying to make good ones. We're trying to make the next design better than the last design. And so every time we design something, You know, I mean, we talked about, and I was at Apple when we did the first laptop, you know, and we thought that was an amazing thing. It had an eight-inch screen that was black and white. It had less than a half a megabyte of memory. It had a little tiny processor that maybe ran at a gigahertz. I mean, it's a laughable machine today, but your designs are about the time they're in, right? And at the time, that was the best possible design, and now we've got things that are amazing. I mean, I look at my my iPad pro, which is this thick, it's a piece of glass (laughs) with the internet, you know, like it's it's a portal into a world. So every time we make a design, we do the best we can. And we know it's just good enough for now, but as long as you're making choices, you're not a victim. You're you're not being, you're not being assaulted by the circumstances. You're, you're taking some control Now we can't control everything. We talk about gravity problems, things you can't do, there's stuff you can't change. Um, you know, we're about to have an election tomorrow in this in in our country, and uh, a whole bunch of stuff is going to happen, but there's a whole bunch of stuff isn't going to happen. And there's still going to be people on both sides who are really, you know, angry, and you can't change that. But you can do your part to make something in your life and your life and and your family's life and the people around you
1: a little bit better. So let's latch on to the word change, because you you study behaviour change a lot in the Stanford Design Life Lab. And you study how difficult it can be. So, you suggest that we set the bar just low enough. And you, you've done this in all your designs just to nudge little behavior just a, a little bit over the line every single time. I'd love to share that because let's get into the tool set and the toolbox.
0: The second book um, includes a bunch of stuff that's now in the book that we found ourselves saying over and over and over again when talking about the first book. Um, so, the, the four step simplified process of get curious, talk to people, try stuff, tell your story. Okay, that, that came out of conversations and now it got so sticky, it's become the architectural backdrop. Um, <clears throat> and and the thing about set the bar low, so, you know, and, and Bill then one day was just saying, well, yeah, we should use the set the bar low method. I go, great, let's name it, let's, we're done. And um, so we just we just codified this phrase, set the bar low method. Now, design thinking, The I've always said the cardiopulmonary system of design thinking or human-centered design, as we called it back in 1963, um, is prototype iteration. And prototypes are small, easy to implement, you know, experiments, i.e. their bar is intrinsically low. They're cheap and they're fast. The only goal they have is to learn something. And so you want them to iterate quickly. So you iterate rapidly rather than um, a whole bunch of stuff in this category is trying to be inspirational. You can be your amazing self. You should be your gold. Aiden, are you really being your A self today? Here's the bar, jump over your own head. Let's go. You can do it, buddy. Okay. I'll argue inspirational to be your superhuman self. Hey, what's your superpower? There's um, a, a cool phrase in California these days. I'm not sure if it is in Dublin, but you know, and I go, well, I'm sorry, I don't have a superpower. You see, I'm not superhuman. I'm a human. I'm just trying to be more human. And so we're trying to get people doable things And I would say a lot of inspiration is mostly soul crushing because you're asking people to do stuff they can't possibly sustain. It sounds great, it gets you all jazzed up and then you feel terrible because you fail. So design has known small increments work because you can't overtest too quickly. Now, behavior modification science has caught up to that. I mean, we were doing that a long time ago and it just happened to be wonderfully coincident with work particularly our our buddy BJ Fogg who is a true behaviorist at Stanford uh, and collaborates with us? Just came out, you know. Shares our agent. Um, we got him in touch with those people. You know, Tiny Habits is his new book. You know, the the small yeah. changes. He's coming on change,
1: soon, guy. Dave. Actually, he's on the show soon.
0: Yeah, he's a great guy, and he will actually yeah. tell you the long and very thoroughly researched answer as to why behavior modification is done in small increments. We, you know, we're not we're we're practitioners. We want to do stuff. We're not interested in being right we're interested in getting stuff done. So if we can help people make progress, great, let's go.
1: One of the other tools that you introduce is the Good Life Journal and the Good Life Journal exercises, which you freely make available from your website as well. I'd love to share these.
0: There's the Good Time Journal in the first book, uh, which is looking at all day long, what do you do, that gives you energy and at what level of your engagement, kind of learn what works for you. And then we refined it um, to the Good Work Journal which actually is a way to extract value from what you're doing. It helps you design your way forward. It can be an empathy step to look for what might work for me, but it's also a feedback loop as a practice, Uh, and Bill will describe it. It asks
2: three questions. Yeah, it asks three questions. What what did you learn today? What did you initiate today? And who did you help? And this comes from the research from uh, guys like um, James Dicci and others who were doing… What was the third one, one, Bill. You kind
0: of went through it. The third one is
2: learning initiating and helping who do i help who did you help so it comes from this it comes from a theory about intrinsic motivations like if i'm learning stuff if i'm learning and mastering new things i i do that just for the joy of doing it um helping other people you know is 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 the number one um indicator of happiness when you believe you're doing something for other people not yourself and then, um, you know, initiating things is about taking action. It's about this bias action. So we, we, we said, look, every day you do some stuff. And, and look for small stuff. Hey, I helped Gladys in accounting, you know, format spreadsheet. Hey, I, uh, I cleaned up the break room. This would be if we were in offices. I cleaned up the break room because the coffee had over, you know, overflowed and it was messy. Just what are the small things you do every day? And, and, and then this, almost all of our exercises are first. Notice what's going on. Pay attention to what's going on. Half the time, that guy in the train who's just bored out of his mind is bored because he's lost his curiosity. He stopped paying attention. There's a there's a beautiful moment in every day. There's something in every day that you can either be grateful for or you can notice. And, the, you know, the learning, helping, and uh, initiating uh, rubric just pulls those things to the surface in a way that at the end of the week you go, hey, that was a pretty good week.
1: Yeah. Uh, Aiden, you
2: want to see, if, uh, I've got an example I can pop up if you want to take a question. Please do,
1: yeah, please do, Dave.
0: Okay, so we've got a little example right here. Let's see if this thing will be kind and actually show
1: the right screen. So we'll describe it for our listeners as well.
0: <laughs> are, you, are you seeing this now? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Okay, so, uh, so it's just like you put the days of the week down, you know, on the left side and then across the top three columns. What did I learn? What did I initiate? Who did I help? And the key thing we want to point out here is, again, set the bar low. You know, what did I learn about quantum physics? No, I mean, what did I learn about how to properly <laughs> beer bottle? I mean, so on Monday, I learned how to make a pivot table in a spreadsheet and I know that, and, uh, hey, I could use that another time, you know? And then on Tuesday, I learned that Gladys in accounting just became a grandmother. Now, I've still learned that. I'm not sure it's going to apply to my career, but then like on what did I initiate? By Wednesday, I put in, I organized a congratulations card for Gladys and accounting, you know? And, you know, then later on, you know, on Thursday, I learned how to color code cells in a spreadsheet for positive and negative values. So I'm getting good at making dashboards. So those are just a little, you know, and who did I help? I helped John put paper in the copier because John's so good at handling the copier. You know?
1: <laughs> You're um, really setting also, the bar low there. The yeah, bar is and, really low Dave.
0: <laughs> and on Friday, I helped Celia in accounting, use my new color code pivot table. Um, so what you do is you um, you get very egalitarian about noticing What did I initiate? What did I learn? Who did I help? And then you've got this record that allows you to go, wow, a lot happened this week. We we refer to this approach as name it and claim it. You know, you, you can't get the value out of something unless you notice it. Our favorite question is, what do you notice? And if you actually crawl into the hood, a bunch of our tools are ways to help you notice what's going on.
1: And one of the things you talk about then is actually and we're, we're all terrible at it. And the more active you are, and the more productive you are, the worse you are usually at it is actually giving yourself a pat on the back and going good job this week. And you talk also about the seventh day exercise,
0: a number of almost every wisdom tradition has ways of going about helping us to be active reflectors and life is built into rhythms. There's the rhythm of the day, the rhythm of the week, the rhythm of a season, you know, we we literally just went off daylight savings time this weekend here uh, in California and my, my wife's single most hated Saturday of the entire year, cause it gets dark. Um, but now, so these seasons occur and the, and you want to tap into those rhythms. And so the seventh day reflection, um, is a variation on one of those. And it's just as you look back at your week, and you take into stock you know what what do you notice what or some of the highs and the lows in particular if you're doing the good work journal you've got a record you can you can review if you're not doing that just sit down for five minutes and say you know what happened in my week that I appreciate what happened that I want to take notice of and in particular let me look at moments for which I am grateful or moments what really highlights and then the recommendation is to re-enter that moment and you get two outcomes you can you, you get one for sure which is savoring. Right? So it was. It was re- so we actually did this really special um, party on Saturday. We did a Dia de los Muertos, which is the Day of the Dead, a Mexican variation on Halloween. It's actually incredibly different than Halloween um, uh, for our, our grandkids. We have nine grandkids. I'm really old. And, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we had this moment where my wife was explaining to these kids what Dia de los Muertos really is. You know, and there was, and, and, and one of the kids asked a question. It was a really sweet question. And go, oh, that was really sweet. And boom, it just goes by, and somebody else grabs somebody else's candy and pulls their hair, and off you go. Um, but if you go back and re enter that moment and just hold that time, you know, when Luke asked that question, you can savor it and get the full value of it all over again as long as you want. And if you do that on a couple of things, it may not be a party, it may be something in the staff meeting, you can. Over time, when you rec- jot these down in the journal, you can look back and go, hey, is there an invitation here for me to have an insight? Oh, I'm having an insight that, you know, boy, a lot of my highlights were in one-on-one conversations with people. You know, in my, in my job is largely large groups, and I wonder, gee, I, I, I better make sure I don't lose track of that one-on-one conversation. You know, so you get insight. Now, there's no guarantee that reflection will give you an insight. You can't, you can't demand that of life, but, you know, uh, you have to pay attention to get them.
1: Bill, you're an artist, so this is going to be, you have so much of an opportunity, I suppose, to have those insights when you're in flow while you're painting. Oh, exactly.
2: I mean, and you know, and, and this like, this idea of, you know, reimagining your experiences, savoring them, you know, uh, and particularly flow experiences during the week. Um, look, you know, we're, we're pretty... You're hardwired you know uh, humans I mean our brain is our brain can only pay attention to one thing at a time this multitasking actually isn't true um, and what we pay attention to is kind of how our mood you know gets set how we feel about today so when we're asking people to pay attention to some things that were valuable like you know helping somebody or having a, learning something when you get in the habit of, of noticing the positive things that are going on in your life, you, you end up with a more positive affect. You have a more positive point of view. Um, it's not that, you know, and, and bad stuff happens and you, and you have to pay attention to that as well. And you have to kind of notice that and reflect on that. But, uh, and I'm not sure you savor bad things, but processing them is very important. So mostly, you know, mostly the, the week is full of all sorts of little Little victories, little moments of insight, or little moments of something, and and if you just get in the habit of paying attention to that instead of paying attention to the jerk in accounting who didn't get your you know expense report done on time, you'll find yourself less frustrated. You'll find yourself um, you know find, find and and it builds on itself. You find other ways to tell other stories, and and then other people tell you their stories, and pretty soon you know that's the community that you're looking for. So it all. It all works. I think that the you know after the savoring is like going out and telling people, hey, I'll, the bonus step is telling that story and and seeing what other people. What did you do this week? You yeah. know, this was yeah. really cool.
1: So I was going to talk about meaning and coherence. I'm going to skip over that because we've kind of touched on that. But one of the huge things related to storytelling is reframing because reframing the story to tell a better story is essential in the toolkit.
2: It, we call it the power tool. Reframing is the uh, it's, it's typically. You got a problem and you're stuck on it and you can't come up with any solutions. A lot of times, you know, it's a, it's a poorly framed problem. But even if it's a well-framed problem and it's not a gravity or anchor problem, um, you can't, you don't know, have any solutions. So the typical reframe is to move up a step. Um, I'll I give you the, the classic, you know, the, the classic entrepreneurial story is Howard Schultz uh, and the invention of, of Starbucks. You know, did, did he, you know, did he reinvent coffee? No, coffee's still coffee. Did he invent the latte? No, he invented the latte you know if you were if you if the task was hey come up with a new kind of coffee there's not that much you can do schultz the story was schultz was in italy and he was in a little cafe in a small town in italy and he walked into the to the coffee shop and the espresso machine is is hissing and the steam is coming up and all the old guys are standing at the counter because they stand to have their their morning espresso and they're chatting and they're talking about their days and what they're going to do and they're laughing and they're telling jokes and they're you know whatever they're doing and, and there was art on the wall, and he walked in that thing and he smelled the smells and he heard the sounds and he heard and he saw the community. He said, We don't have anything like this in America. This isn't about coffee. This is about the experience of coming together in the morning with a little jolt of caffeine, but it's bigger than that. He came back, recreated it in some form in the US, and that was the, that was the invention of Starbucks. So it's not about, typically, it's not about the problem, it's moving up a level. You know, it's not the coffee, it's the coffee experience. It's not just the experience, it's the experience of community once I'm redesigning community, if that's my reframe, I got a million ideas. If my right. if my problem is to redesign coffee, I don't know, tall cup, short cup, you know, with milk, without milk. I mean, this, you know, you got to get to a level of the problem where there's enough enough room to have new ideas. And that's the power of reframing. It's interesting, you know, we, um,
0: we get called on our own. You, you do this kind of work and you have totally signed up to be a hypocrite. I mean, you know, I mean, my wife, Cassie, I was, you know, there's this book you really should read. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and it's a fair critique. Um, but, you know, one of the things Bill and I both have been caught at, they kind of go, hey, you guys recommend reframing all the time. You do it all the time. You never explain how to do it. How do you do it? And, and for both of us, right, we've been at this so long, we, we just do. I mean, what I literally do when I reframe is um, my brain looks like a, one of those multi-screen theaters. There's about 17 movies playing at one time all the time, you know, and people are talking to me, and I, and I just quickly scan the screens to see if one of them is playing something more interesting about the story they're I Go, hey, what if we looked at it this way? And I, I read from the screen in my head, and they go, Yeah, that'd be really cool. So that's re- but you can't teach people to do that. I mean, that's that's aberrant behavior. Um, but what we have found is Bill talked about, you know, one thing is you level up, so you get more view, right? You can see more possibilities. And the other is you gotta, you got to get out from under. So there's people who need to see higher and there are people who need to stop seeing lower. And that's the example in the book, you know, is, you know, the, the problem is my stupid boss is just a jerk. I never get any feedback around here.
2: You know, yeah. people a stupid boss.
0: embed in their problem statement a dysfunctional conviction that's going to keep them grounded to it you know, I will never because, you know, and so, okay, you you know, the old adage, you know, if you want to argue for your limitations, you're probably going to get to keep them. Um, So what we do is help people get loose of the stuff in their problem framings that are bolting them to the ground. So if you you have to be objective, you have to be, you know, fairly unimpassioned. Um, Design thinking actually isn't nice. It's, it's, I mean, you know, it's pretty perky people who do it, but the truth is it's brutally objective because reality the way things actually are, like, yes, that virus will kill you. So let's take some attention to it. Um, uh, we have to be brutally committed to, committed to reality and just and realize, oh, if I want something new to happen, this is why acceptance is so important, then I have to start where things are. Because design, being empirical, being hands-on, being behavioral, not just imaginary, um, requires reality to work. You can't you can't design in the land of should. You can't design in the land of just the way I wish it were.
2: So yeah. we we we're the, realists. Yeah, the, the, like I said, we, we we do this a lot intuitively. Dave, you know, we actually wrote Dave actually did most of the chapter here. Um, Describe that minimum minimum actionable problem, Dave, because we we this is the right. instead of going up a level of of abstraction, this is a going into the problem and taking all the parts out that don't matter.
0: Yeah, so if, if take the example of, you know, so some guy says, hey, man, you know, I'm I've never getting feedback around him. My boss is just a jerk. You know, um, and you go, okay. Well, first of all, you know, you got a couple of things in there. Apparently, you're interested in feedback. Um, it is implies that you want to get that feedback from your boss, and he never gives it to you. So you've decided that he's a jerk. So which problem did you want to solve? Do you want to, you want to solve where you're getting your feedback? Do you want to solve what kind of feedback you're getting? Do you want to solve the fact that your boss is a jerk? Do you want to get him a personality transplant or get him fired? Um, okay, well, probably I would say the minimum actionable problem is not get your boss fired. That's I mean, that's there's a chapter in politics in the book, but it's not about that. Uh, and so, okay, okay, well, it's really, what you really want is feedback, right? Okay, so now I notice you've decided... Feedback has to, you have to ask the honest question. Do you think your boss's personality is one where feedback is going to come from there? No. Okay. So the, if the reframe is, um, I noticed my boss is bad at feedback. I wonder where else I could get some. That's a very different problem. And now I say, okay, now my problem is my first task is simply look around in my current job description, in my current communication and workflow patterns, Where are places where I can receive both intrinsic and explicit feedback, identify the ones that, you know, seem to be the most credible to you and and work the best and see whether or not is there a way now that chats we come. Can I design a way to get a little, gee, you know, my boss, Bill, you know, I'm the extrovert. He's the introvert. He doesn't give feedback very much. He doesn't talk that much. I poke him and nothing much happens. I mean, but I could go, I could talk to Sherry Shepard down the hall, um, you know, and she's, she's bouncy.
1: That's not true, by the way.
0: uh, I'm trying to
1: look down the hole there. No, he's an
0: introvert, but he gives great (laughs) feedback. uh, He's learned how to do that. Um, But there are ways to get there. So the minimum actionable problem is like, well, what is it you really want to make it good enough for now?
1: And Dave, I'm going to stay with you because we talked about view there, and you encourage us to write a work view, and then a life view, and you share your story here. And it'll become clear why I'm asking you this, because you did this very profoundly in your own life, when you were a little bit overwhelmed with the life with the work view.
0: You know, most of us uh, are, are walking out our woundedness, right? I mean, we are all walking wounded. Um, and for many of us, you know, your our vocation ends up some way reflecting um, if we found some healing along the way, we want to share that with the world, particularly if the problem we struggled with is endemic to the human experience. And, you know, in my late teens, early twenties, when I was in college, they're like, what do I do with this life thing? You know, I mean, it was really, really difficult. Um, and struggling with that for 30 odd years, you know, is was what turned it into what became finally designing your life. So for me, you know, um, there was a time, particularly at one point when I was the co-founder of electronic arts you know and 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 life wasn't working at all uh, i mean it, it sounds great on paper but i'm just i'm working 80 hours a week in a company that turned it was going to be this creativity thing and just turned into a pure game company which is fine except i don't like them at all i'm in charge of product development in a game company and i don't like games at all
1: that's yeah. a-
0: you know, um, and I care deeply about my kids because my father killed himself when I was a young man when I was nine years old and I didn't have a father. I wanted to be a father and I'm a terrible father because I'm just working all the time and I'm unhappy when I get home because I don't like the work and like holy shit, this is not working. Pardon my French. And, um, so yeah, that's when I'm living incoherently who I am, what I'm doing and what I believe in are not lined up at all. Um, and so later on we came up with these exercises. Well, what do you think work is really about? What's your work view? not what job description do you want, but what does work mean to you? What's it about? What's about the money, about the contribution, about the skill, what do you, a lot of things in there. And then is that, you know, coincident with your, your values of, around what you think of the most important questions in life? The, what, what are the ultimate questions for you? Like, why are we here? You know, um, and those things are your pointer to call that the compass exercise, because the answers to those questions, you can then assess your current life and go, well, where are the gaps? and and And, can I redesign in place to be more coherent, and ultimately, if I can't, then maybe I need to start looking at even relocating.
1: you mentioned their politics, and I really want to share a little bit on that because it's so important to our listenership who a lot of people work in innovation and change within organizations, a lot of people are entrepreneurs and think I don't have to put up with that politics things. I'll come back to that. But I really wanted to share the maker mixing Boards exercise. It's fantastic. And Dave, I think you've, uh, you, you can show it on screen uh, for those people who are watching.
2: Bill Narrated, popping up on the screen. So, when we, you know, first book we were talking, every was work life balance. Oh, I can't get my work life balance right. And we said, look, whenever it's a dichotomy like that, you're screwed because you get more of one, you get less of the other. So, we reframed uh, this idea of money versus meaning. Well, I want I to have a meaningful job, but you know, the meaningful jobs don't pay very much. You know, they're in nonprofits and schools and things like that, but the jobs that pay a lot are horrible and you have to do mean things to people. And we said, no, 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 that's not how it works. So we, we, we blew it into three things and the, and the three things came from our conversations with people. And particularly when people made their odyssey plans, which is an assignment from the first book, they came up with lots of things about impact and expression and money and all the different ways that it could work. So we said, look, you're, you're like, mixing a song. This is a mixer board. You have sliders on this board. Um, and, and you set your output levels for what your, your current intentions, how much money, how, how much money do I need to make? Or how much money am I making? And is that right where I want it to be? How much impact am I making? So in the, in the, uh, money in the, the commercial economy, we get paid money, you know, the, the business economy, it's all about money. But let's say I work for a nonprofit and we're, we're teaching, we're putting kids in an after school sports programs to keep them out of gangs. I'm not, I'm not measuring my return on investment on that, on that company. It's a nonprofit. I'm measuring my impact. How many kids are we impacting? How many, you know, people are we getting out of homeless shelters and into the housing? So impact is the measure there. And then almost everybody wants something in their life to be creative. And when we talked to the creative people—the writers and the poets and the artists and, and folks—they said, "Yeah, it's all about expression. If I get to do my play or sing my song or you know paint my painting, then I've, I'm happy. I'm not. I'm not looking for to be paid off in that economy and money. I'm looking to be paid in expression." dollars, if you will, to mix metaphors. So you you figure out where you are. I'm, I'm okay on money. I'm not having very much impact, I'm not having any expression at all. Then you say, okay, what's a small change? Again, a small change, a tiny change we could make, a little prototype we could run that might move one of those those things. I'd like to move my impact up a little. I'd like to have more impact. in like And I, and I want to work with kids. So I'm going to volunteer at my school, and I'm just going to go in one day a week, and I'm going to help kids learn to read. Boom, impact went up. My, my mix feels like a better song for me right now. Um, you, we talked beforehand, Aiden, about um, I'm moving towards being more of a full-time artist from a part-time artist. So I'm trying to take that expression knob and put it way up high. I doubt, I don't know, You know, like, if, I'm, if I turn out to be Picasso, which is unlikely, then I will have invented a new visual language and I will have impacted the world of art. Probably not gonna happen, but I'm gonna have a good time painting. I'm gonna have lots of expression yeah, the money will be fine. The impact will be, you know, right now at Stanford, I'm working mostly for impact. I'm I'm trying to train the next generation of designers. So my impact dial is way
0: high. Well, at Stanford, I'm working entirely for impact because I gave all my income back
2: to Kathy so she could budget for other people. The, uh, <laughs> uh, and by the way, it's about what fits now and where are you going and how are you going to get there with some small um, prototypes that you can run literally in a week to see if you like the impact, or like the expression, or like the increase in money. You want more money? Do a gig. Do a weekend gig. At the top, That's- it says set your current. It says output
0: level. One of the misperceptions here, you know, for a lot of people, is more is better. Like, oh, a really good maker mix would be all three sliders maxed out. No, that'd just be horrible. I mean, if you're on a soundboard and you're mixing a really great song, you know, an award-winning song, you don't take all the sliders and shove them to the top, a max bass, <laughs> max treble, max mid-range, max reverb. It's just noise. Um, and what we're dealing with here is not, you know, more is better. And and the max is whatever it happens to be for you. So what's your, if you imagine you are being as creative as you possibly could be, you, you're fully exercising your creativity muscles that's what max means you know if the same thing were true about your your uh, your, your your impact in terms of your contacting of the lines or however you think about it just again how you think about it and so what you're playing around with is what portion of your output? Are you sending out through that channel? I've got, you know, if I think of myself as like, I got a bunch of IO plugs on the front of my chest, and you know, one of them is, <laughs> is an output channel for money and an output channel for impact and an output channel for expression. Am I turning them up or down? Because it's, I can't max them all out. I'll, I'll pass out in about 10 minutes.
1: Don't be giving people ideas, man. I know you're in Silicon Valley. You'll be hooked up to a machine in no time.
0: <laughs> um, no. The is just what's working for you, which is why, by the way, if one goes up, the others don't have to go down. It is not a zero sum game.
1: Let, let's move on to power and politics because I'd love to. There's an impact map as well, which is fantastic. Highly recommend going through the book and loads of exercise were lost over. I sent you my notes, and you said I didn't budget for four hours here for this interview, so I have to. I have to make some calls here. I thought the power and politics chapter was really, really important because for lots of reasons. Those people who work in innovation and entrepreneurship within big, large organizations often have nothing to trade, they have no power to trade, they've no people, they've no status. Sometimes when they join, they don't, they don't even have any contribution yet. So how do they manage that ecosystem? That's one thing. And then the other one is, don't think just because you're a small business owner or somebody working alone as a gig in the gig economy, that power and politics is not important. It's essentially important. And that was a real penny drop for me because I, I, I hate the idea of politics with an organisation. It's really hard, but it's so important to understand it. I'd love if you would share some on this.
0: In organisational life, there are lots of forms of power, you can go get a PhD on power forms in organisational development and organisational theory. Um, you know 10, 12, 15 different kinds of power. But again and again and again, the two big dogs that rule the roost almost 90% of the time in 90% of the situations are authority and influence. And authority is the direct power to make decisions and, and what have you, and influence is on that. And the key thing to understand is influence always acts on authority. So if you're trying to make a change in the world, trying to do something, you're going to make a change. Well, before every change that occurs that's visible, Somebody made a decision, right? And if you made a decision, then you had to have the authority to make that decision. Well, says who? Well, you know, I mean, says who we're going to talk about? I mean, you're the authoritative guy on picking the questions for this interview, right? Now, before we got started, I said, well, hey, no, I think politics might be better. I want to talk about. That? I can try to influence you, but it only works if the guy that has the power, the woman who has the power, actually agrees with you. So wielding of influence is the definition of organizational politics. The reason most people just yourself included probably is we don't like politics is most people's first exposure to politics is ugly, bad politics, people behaving badly, people trying to influence for personal gain, not for organizational health. Um, and so we learn the yucky stuff. Uh, and we, we, get a contact reaction against it. The truth is 95% of political activity, small p, the wielding of influence is done healthily on behalf of let's try to do the right thing, right? So for instance, I've sort of become the outside guy at the Stanford Life Design Lab. Bill's very much the inside guy, still has a full-time Stanford job leading the design program. So I'm not running the lab anymore. Kathy Davies is running the lab and and Bill's directing her and that team. Now, I'm still pretty influential because, like, I helped write the book and I thought the whole thing up, you know, 20 years ago. But nonetheless, I've got to convince Kathy and Bill, um, hey, should we be adding a character module to the course? And if so, how do we go about that? You know, then I have to go to those people and wield my influence on behalf of doing better work for more students to help them live lives of joy and, and authenticity. Um, that's, that's not a nasty thing. So if you understand that, then pretty much you get this two by two matrix, which is people who have influence and people who don't and people who have authority and people who don't. You've got influential authoritarians, people who have power, formal power, and people listen to. You've got influential non-authoritarians. That's me at Stanford right now. I have no authority at all, none, but I'm pretty influential in this one little area. Then you've got non-influential non-authoritarians, which is most people, by the way. They're not bad. They're just not in positions of either influencer or authority. And then you have non-influential authoritarians, kind of the executive vice president of looking out the window. Um, (laughs) People get kicked upstairs. Um, And so when you think of it just in those terms, who has influence, who has authority, who has both, who has neither, um, you can quickly sort any population of people in a workplace and realize how does it work. And the way it works, by the way, is you gain influence by adding value, doing something people think is worthwhile, and then having the powerful people recognize that. So let's say we're after this conversation, you know, Aiden goes, boy, those guys, those guys ask really, really good questions. You know, I like their, you know, I should put them, I should put them on the interview team. You know, in fact, I should, I should run all my questions by Bill from now on. I think I want to do that. I, you just decided to make Bill influential in your podcast. Gotcha. By virtue of your recognizing the insight. You know, let's say the third time he goes, well, Aiden, that's a really good question. I think what you're really getting at is, then he reframes your question to a much better question. He said, oh, I wish I'd asked it that way. He does that three times and he kind of go, I'm going to have him prove all my questions. Brilliant. That's where influence comes from. He recognized good work. So the, the essential engine of politics is fundamentally healthy once you level up and get out of the muck.
1: And you have an exercise bill that goes with this that you run in your workshops, which is the power sort exercise, which is really useful.
2: And sometimes when we run it, people go, that's what happened in my startup. I had no idea. Everybody seemed to be churning and churning and churning and we were and, and and we we kept having different objectives every week and we didn't understand it. And and then they and then they look at it and they go, oh okay what was happening is there was the founders then the founding team got displaced because the VCs didn't think there was enough progress. So they brought in the new CEO and the new CEO had authority, but nobody knew the new CEO. So he had, so there was no one influencing him. He was just act, acting as an authoritarian. And the meantime, the, the the two founders who got pushed to the side who had lots of influence because everybody you know joined to be with those, those two, um, had, you know, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, how to resolve the influence and authority, you know, struggle in my startup or, or something even more benign, but, um, you know, to to point to point to Dave's point, when, when a company is disorganized or when it's, it doesn't have this, you know, this, you've got three CEOs in, in, you know, in three years, or it doesn't really, you know, something's happened in the marketplace and suddenly it's winning strategy is a losing strategy and it doesn't know what to do. Um, by the way, when I left Apple, was when Apple stock was at 14. And when Michael Dell said the kindest thing Steve Jobs could do would be to sell the company and give the stockholders their money back. No, Apple didn't have a strategy. <laughs> Apple had had four CEOs in, you know, in six years. And um, what, what Steve did, did when he came back is he rationalized the strategy around what was actually happening in the marketplace. He came up with just three, but three really good ideas, an iPod, an iPhone, and an iPad. Um, but that was enough to organize everybody, and then all the politics became normal, and everybody was trying to work for the good of the company. Previous to that, if there's no strategy, and I'm the senior vice president of something, then what I want to do is have a bigger empire. So I'm going to argue to reorganize the company around me, or I'm going to argue you know, to give me all the money for the projects because I'm the best guy. But it had nothing to do with what was good for the company. So you can you can experience bad politics, particularly in times of you know change uh, and times when people don't know what's going on, or times when, you know, the new owner comes in and nobody no no one has influence because the new owner has its own, you know, his own side. By the way, what Steve did when he came in is he fired all the senior managers and brought in a team that he already knew. Primarily because they were people who gave him the best advice. They were very influential with him. And he needed he and he knew he would need that you know, in order to operate the company because he was arriving. you know. That's a quick new.
0: sidebar, by the way. I, I did management consulting for 25 years. You know, classic example, incomes into new executive cleans house immediately. People classically believe that's because like, you know, you know, it's the good guys and the bad guys. Not, good, You're bad. you're out of here. Um, you're, you're all crap. Um, no, that is not why they're doing that. If you're brought in from the outside to lead something that was in trouble, you're supposed to fix it and you're supposed to move quickly. You've got a hundred days before they decide, nope, not you. Wow, Which means I have no time. I have to find trustworthy influencers. You know, Aiden, you may be terrific. I haven't got time to figure that out. I know Bill. I'm putting Bill in your chair, sorry, <laughs> buddy. Simply because I totally know Bill can deliver, and I need him to deliver like by eight o'clock tomorrow morning. So the reason people do that is speed. It's not. It's not vendettas. It's just pra- again back to reality. It just is what it is. How can we design our way forward?
1: I know you're under pressure to go. Speaking of speed, and I had loads more questions, as you know, to ask you. I didn't get through even a tenth of them. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to the authors of Designing Your Work Life How to Thrive and Change and Find Happiness now at Work. Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Where can people find out more if they want to work out, look at, at the franchise, all that kind of stuff?
0: Well, still, the home website is still uh, Designing Your Dot Life. So it's the first book title with a dot. There's also Designing Your Work Dot Life. And those will both take you wherever you need to go. And there's lots of stuff on there. And there's, you know, video training courses at CreativeLive. All the be, worksheets
2: are there for free if you need them. Yeah.
0: Uh, we took this little four-step refrain. And if I want to leave people with anything, memorize the following 10 words. Get curious. Talk to people. Try stuff. Tell your story get curious, talk to people, try stuff, tell your story, which is get energized about something, two steps of prototyping, and then go tell the story and be an interesting person.
1: Been an absolute pleasure talking to you guys. Thanks so much for your time and for your brilliant books. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Thanks job.